This is The Lack with Nina Power and Benjamin Studebaker. Today we're doing May-December, and I will kick us off. May-December came out on Netflix this past December. Ha, ha, ha. It was directed by Todd Haynes, who also directed Safe, a 1995 film we covered on the pod a while back. Julianne Moore plays a woman who abandoned her family to have an affair with a 13-year-old boy. The boy, played by Charles Melton, is now in his mid-30s. Moore and Melton have had several children together, producing an entirely new family separate and distinct from the one Moore abandoned back in the 90s. Moore and Melton began having kids when Melton was still a teenager. Indeed, Moore had to give birth from inside the prison cell where she was held for statutory rape. Their kids are now young adults, and at points it's hard to tell the mid-30s Melton apart from his teenage son. Into all of this steps Natalie Portman's character. She's playing a famous actress who is starring in a film about Moore's relationship with Melton. Moore hopes to use Portman to tell her side of the story, and Portman hopes to use Moore to make a commercially successful film. The two women are constantly looking to exploit one another, and yet both women have an interest in keeping this exploitation invisible. So, Moore pretends that she is naive and fragile, while Portman pretends that she is only interested in conveying the truth. Each sees through the ruse of the other, but because they both think they have the upper hand, they both continue to put on the show. So, in a sense, both characters are naive. Both characters think they really stand a chance of deceiving the other. But at the same time, both characters are wise to the game, are perfectly aware that a game is being played. This produces a mix of knowing and naive behavior, in which both characters think they've won conversations they have in fact lost. Neither will get what they want from the film. The film won't help Moore tell her story, and it won't win Portman any awards. It will just be a middling TV movie, the kind of flick you might find on the CW. Both parties are going to a lot of trouble over very little. Amidst all of this, it is Melton who steals the show. Unlike Moore and Portman, who are both pretending to be naive, Melton actually was innocent. Because he had children at such a young age, he has never had a chance to receive a real education or think seriously about whether this was in fact the life he wanted. Both Moore and Portman use him relentlessly. Moore continuously insists that even though he was just 13, he was the one in charge of the relationship. Portman seduces him in a bid to get a sense for what sex with him might have been like for Moore. Once the research has been conducted, she tosses him aside. When he protests, she tells him this kind of exploitation is just what adults do. The implication is that Melton has never really had an opportunity to be an adult. He's never really had the opportunity to formulate an ego to develop a sense of self. And because in his case the sense of self never developed, he treats the feelings of the people around him as his responsibility. This means that Moore's displays of weaknesses uh, and naivete are highly effective at controlling him. At the same time, because he is a father who produced biological children with Moore, there is a real sense in which Melton's character does have a duty to be a father. So, when Portman tells Melton that he ought to prioritize himself, he feels he can do no such thing. His obligations to his children have, for many years, prevented him from seriously considering abandoning Moore. It is only when their graduations are imminent that he allows himself to entertain the possibility of doing something else with his life. But his life experience outside this family structure is extremely limited, and so when he tries to get involved with Portman romantically, it quickly becomes clear that he's totally out of his depth. It is only because she wants to sleep with him, for the sake of informing her performance, that it is possible for him to sleep with her. In ordinary circumstances, he would fall all over himself helplessly or say nothing at all. That surely was how it was when he was 13, too. It was only because Moore wanted to sleep with him that the relationship began in the first place. But Moore conceals this reality from him by pretending to be too weak and vulnerable to do without him. She has him convinced that she could not survive without him, and in combination with the sense of obligation he feels toward the children, this has made it extremely difficult for him to leave. 
A sense of individuality has to be constructed so that it can be deconstructed in much the same way that we have to root ourselves in our bodies and in materiality to begin to strive for value. Our social roles become meaningful because we recognize our need to qualify our individuality, to subordinate it to more meaningful purposes. But if we are denied an opportunity to become individuals in the first instance, we are also denied an opportunity to overcome this individuality. The subject can only overcome itself once it is constituted as a subject. Melton was never constituted as a subject, and so he cannot complete the project of self-overcoming. It is not even a project he is able to understand. This is what Moore did to him. She took from him the opportunity to become a fully realized human being. And in this sense, she denied to him what is promised, but rarely fulfilled in a human life. And yet, in his incompleteness, he remains in some sense more complete than Moore and Portman, characters who are completely caught in individuality. They are unable to serve others and view adulthood as a game of exploitation. We are ethically the strongest at the beginning and at the end of psychological development. It is in the middle where we have individuality but lack the capacity of self-overcoming, where we do the greatest damage to other people. It is for this reason that so many troubled teens were once good kids and so many virtuous adults were once troubled teens. As capitalism works to prolong adolescence and to delay and prevent self-overcoming, fewer adults succeed in becoming fully realized human beings, and that means we have more adults who fail either to become individuals or to overcome individuality. Plato points out that it's better to suffer injustice than it is to do injustice to another. In the same way, perhaps it is better to remain a kid and be exploited by overgrown teenagers than it is to be one of these overgrown teenagers who is unable to see the value of serving others. And so, while Melton is the one who experiences the exploitation, perhaps it is better to be him than it is to be Moore or Portman. And with that provocation, I'll kick it over to Nina and find out what she thought of the movie. <laughs> okay, very nice. I um, Yeah, it's, it's always, I suppose, worthwhile watching Todd Haynes. Um, it, it's going to be difficult for him to eclipse safe as, in a way, the film of <laughs> the 20th century explicitly. Um, but he obviously returns to use Julianne Moore, here, who, who's always kind of sublime and she's sort of aging um, into this, uh, you know, really quite powerful figure, a bit like Nicole Kidman, who's still uh, acting these kind of very, very impressive, um, you know, now older, very beautiful um, women. Um, and Todd Haynes is obviously ploughing a certain furrow. He's got this kind of washed out technicolor sentimentality he's probably the greatest living exponent of melodrama which i i suppose we would associate largely with the 1940s and 50s um we've we've looked at some melodrama a couple of weeks ago um so there is a sense in which uh, there's a kind of dramatic emotionality often at work in his films often about love affairs that are illicit or forbidden or across racial or, you know, and in this case, it's cross age. And it's interesting, the screenplay was written or the story was written by Sammy Birch, who's a woman, and she recalled um, in the 90s, these kind of stories, they do still crop up. But I, I remember this too. I remember these kind of scandalous stories where the in a way that the sort of the sexes were reversed. So we might ask in the first place, and, and this is apparently based on a true story to some degree, or at least there is a series of true stories in which older women had relationships with younger men, teenage boys, not children, <laughs> but incredibly young men. So post-pubescent, but only jest. And these are the kind of stories that were floating around pre-internet in a kind of tabloid space of the National Enquirer. And like you say, these kind of made-for-TV sort of movies that have this um, edge. Also, these kind of talk shows that were very, very popular. Oprah, obviously, still going, but Ricky Lake. And they, they, they had kind of, there was a sliding scale of sort of tackiness, really, uh, to these talk shows. And they often involved these kind of very outre 
stories where where people had transgressed social norms. Um, obviously, things shift a bit in the internet, but one of the things that does remain in the age of the internet is um, age difference discourse, we could say. People periodically seem to get very angry about um, large age gaps, <laughs> either be- between men and women, um, in either direction. But usually, so for example, I think um, who comes in for opprobrium a lot, that Hollywood actor who makes women sign contracts. Who, who am I talking about? Um, very famous Oh, um, I don't want to slander somebody by naming somebody who isn't the right. Okay, uh, well, he's, he's he's very famous for doing this. You know, the guy in Titanic. I can't believe I've forgotten his name. Anyway, Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio. <laughs> so, um, I'm so far removed from popular culture. This is just a symptom of my <laughs> elevated being. No, but but by all accounts, this is public knowledge. You know, so so that he sort of famously or rather infamously um, gets you know, girlfriends to sign sort of NDAs, but they tend to be of a certain age. So he's sort of, obviously he's getting older as we all are, but he he prefers to date women up to the age of sort of 23 or something like this. And there's a kind of social disapproval um, that you can see in some parts of the internet. But oftentimes people are very judgmental about large age gaps. Um, obviously in this case or these kinds of cases, there is a criminal <laughs> element too. Um, clearly, uh, the Julianne Moore character has been, um, you know, imprisoned for statutory rape, as you as you said. So, and and it's it's it is kind of interesting to imagine what happens to these people twenty years on, right? And it, of course, they they stay together. And you say this is a very complex set of reasons why that's that's the case. Clearly, that's that's true. You talk about the kind of infantile or the, the arrested um, development of the of the boy now man, um, which is is evident clearly. You know he hasn't had certain kind of adult experiences, although he has had others such as fatherhood, um, and it's not clear at all that he's a bad father. I mean, he there's a scene where he kind of gets a little bit stoned for the first time in his life with his much more worldly wise son. And sort of has a kind of anxiety attack about whether he's been a good father or what kind of person he is, which you know can happen if you're a bit high, especially if you're not you've never smoked before. And and the son is 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 very you know sympathetic and careful to reassure his father that everything's okay, that the the son is okay. Um, the daughter too seems okay. I wasn't quite sure exactly whose children were were whose or which came. At which point, but anyway, it's it's clear. I think that they had at least two children together, and maybe she had two from a previous marriage, something like this. There's clearly tension in the family that's um, revealed in the presence of Natalie Portman's actress character. Of course, this film is also a meta film about acting. It's also about what it takes to become an actor, and about the blurred lines when the Natalie Portman character goes to speak to acting students at the school, including one of the daughters. In the family, she talks about losing the boundaries, blurring boundaries. Uh, she's specifically referring to sex th- scenes, which of course foreshadows her um, sexual encounter uh, with the with the male protagonist um, later on. But it's very clear that acting itself it's a reflection on this blurring of the boundaries. So obviously, she's not only trying to become more like the Julianne Moore character, but there's something fundamental to the nature of acting itself, which obviously Todd Haynes would be fascinated by. There are hints of uh, Bergman's persona in this film, the the proximity of the two women and the the way in which character becomes kind of mimetic, you know, forms of emulation. There's a very sort of edgy scene where the Julianne Moore character does the makeup for Natalie Portman to mimic the makeup that Julianne Moore uses, and and it's almost uh, you wonder if they're going to kiss. It's it you know it, it's deliber- deliberately kind of provocative um, in this blurring of, of boundaries. So I yeah I I mean one thing to to note which which must be deliberate. I mean well two things. One of which is that Julianne Moore is herself arrest in a state of arrested development. Not clear what her, exactly her relationship to her parents was. She describes her mother as being beautiful at some point. Um, she's clearly emotionally quite disturbed. There are often scenes of her 
crying, weeping. She's still suffering forms of social punishment um, in the form of people cancelling orders. She she kind of does a sort of home run bakery service. Um, she's not really been fully accepted back. There's a scene near the beginning where some some very unpleasant something is sent in the post to her, and she says, "Well, this used to happen." much more often, you know, and this this is apparently something that happens to people who are hated in the public mind, you know, and, and but she nevertheless stays in the place where the pet shop was, where she met the boy, as was boy. Um, and she is committed somehow to the, the place where all of this happened. I think it's very revealing that she's very unpleasant to her daughter. There's a scene where her daughter tries on a prom dress and the daughter is very, very manifestly happy about a particular dress, which is more revealing than some of the others. And the daughter is is not unpretty. She, she's kind of a normal size. But nevertheless, the, the mother makes this, the Julianne Moore character makes this incredibly bitchy comment about, oh, I wish I had had your confidence to show my arms, you know, when I was your age. But it, it and it's so... Uh, explicitly and excruciatingly uh, a kind of cut down of her own daughter as if she's a sexual rival to her daughter. So there's a, there's a problem. Well, there's a series of problems, clearly. But if Julianne Moore, and I do wonder about this with paedophilia sometimes, whether people who have a sexual desire for children, and obviously this manifests in different ways, and obviously it's absolutely morally abhorrent not to mention uh, criminally um, punishable, um, but whether there's a sense in which sometimes the people who have sexual desire for children are themselves not grown up somehow, that they can't, I don't know, it's a, it's a sort of complicated way of trying to think about it, but the Julianne Moore character is herself arrested and she then arrests the development of this boy through over-sexualizing him early on. And of course, we never know the truth of their original account encounter. But very clearly, Julianne Moore was in her 30s, married with two children. And and even if the boy had um, had seduced her, as, as she suggests, or behaved in a sexually inappropriate way, and it's not beyond the not out of the question. But obviously, as the adult in that situation, she would have had to have been the one to prevent that you know or to make light of it or to you know i mean it's so so clearly she is um morally responsible for this um you know and then criminally responsible as well so i wanted to note this kind of malformation in julianne moore's character as well but also a, a strange detail which is the the hobby of the boy now man which is breeding monarch butterflies and monarch butterflies if anyone has fallen down various conspiratorial rabbit holes, <laughs> as I sometimes do periodically, and I'm sure we all do when we can't sleep. Monarch butterflies are the symbol of child abuse um, in Hollywood in particular. And if you read accounts of people who claim to have been um, molested or programmed under MK Ultra, the monarch butterfly is the, is the symbol of this abuse. And I, I, I think it can't be um coincidental that this is exactly the kind of butterfly that he is breeding um this may well in a in a sense be Todd Haynes's oblique comment on child abuse within Hollywood which is well discussed let's say is still rather secret um and i think it's it's manifestly clear and it wouldn't be Strange to think about the relationship between prostitution and acting, which were always very closely tied. The casting couch, the various revelations about Harvey Weinstein, the widespread accounts of sexual abuse um, in Hollywood, um, and also more, even more horribly, accounts of children being groomed. And, and we know, for example, that a lot of the contemporary pop stars start off very young you know they're they're kind of sexualized when they're 12 or 13 and um you know and, and are kind of made into stars um and there's a lot of speculation at kind of what cost um to them and and so on so i think the monarch butterflies are, are not 
without becoming too conspiratorial, I think that they're not coincidental. I think there is a kind of gesture towards this in a almost Kubrickian way. Kubrick, obviously, I mean, particularly towards the end in Eyes Wide Shut, also makes very clear um, some claims about the darkness of of Hollywood um, and of, of the elites in general. And, and again, you know, the Epstein revelations definitely, of course, point to, to these things. It would be surprising if they didn't go on, even if they're not quite as fevered as, as, as some might um, imagine. So I thought that was, um, that was maybe worth noting. I, it's a, it's a kind of strange film. I, I would say overall, I mean, it's quite, it's quite slight, in a way, despite the fame of the actors, it's a it's a kind of minor story, quite well told. The end is perhaps a little bit abrupt, um, but I I I take your point very well that this is a kind of game of one-upmanship and a strange kind of rivalry that that maybe can't really ever conclude um, in a sort of meaningful way, at least within the bounds of the the film itself, which is, of course, a meta film about making a film, um, as well as a commentary on melodrama and the kind of stories that become big news. So, yeah, maybe maybe if we go back to your first question, and then I think my question to, to you would be this resurrection of age gap discourse, because I'm sure you've come across it um you know, periodically people seem to just get very annoyed on behalf of other people that there is an age gap. <laughs> um, despite the fact that people often say that there's, you know, there's no problem in their relationship. You know, I mean, it, just in my own personal life, I, I've been out with someone who's 11 years younger than me. Um, and I'm also, I'm going out with someone who is nine years older than me. And I, I don't seem to have a problem with large age gaps um in terms of who I love um and I I mean I think when I started going out with Alfie some people were quite shocked because the age gap at that point was quite stark um as in Alfie was in his early 20s and I was in my early 30s um but I you know it didn't make any difference if you saw what I mean I'm not sure quite what difference it could make to people I suppose uh maybe a lack of shared cultural references but then in a way we live in such a jumbled culture that actually if you're both interested let's say in philosophy or in particular kind of music then you actually do have an enormous amount of shared cultural references and perhaps there's something interesting to say about the we discussed it last week but this shift away from the passive culture the universal general culture you know so if you grew up in 1982 everyone was watching whatever, the same shows, Doctor Who, blah, 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 there'd be a kind of common currency. Whereas now, you know, the opportunities for getting into specific genres, subgenres, and so on, um, is much more manifest. So I think that might maybe um, changes these these things a little bit, jumbles them up. But let's, um, let's see what you think. Yeah, I think that a lot of people lately are bothered about age gaps, in part because we've become very unsure what the stages of development are for people. What constitutes being an adult? Uh, there are a lot of people who are ages that in previous periods would have been understood to be adult who don't behave very much like what we think adults ought to behave like. Uh, it doesn't seem realistic or sensible to frame all, all of those people as, as sick in some way because they're, I think, most people, I think most people at this point behave like adolescents much longer than we standardly would have taken adolescents to be. And I think there is an understandable feeling that an adolescent and an adult should not go out, that there's a difference between an adolescent and an mm -hmm. adult, and that that difference ought to be observed. But if we don't know when adolescence ends, and we don't really have a, a shared understanding of what constitutes the distinction between an adolescent and an adult, then this general feeling that adolescents and adults shouldn't go out, but we can't really tell the difference between them will produce a lot of anxiety about all sorts of relationships. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that I think that's correct. And I yeah, there's a interesting Susan Nyman book, which I quoted in my book on men, um, 
which is has the title like why should we grow up and it's a kind of discussion of the sort of infantilism of our age which is precisely correct. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm very much part of this infantilism. I, I still act very much as if I'm <laughs> 15 or 20, even though I'm more than twice that age. Um, and, you know, it is, of course, completely possible to to maintain a certain youthful <laughs> relation to the world, um, no matter how much it beats you down. But... But yes, I think this is this is right. I mean, at the same time, we have proposals, for example, by Richard Reeves, who's written about men and boys, who suggests that all of the evidence points to the fact that boys, well, we know this, mature um, uh, after girls. So he proposes that boys should start school two years after girls do, because the gap is just so vast in terms of uh, behaviour and educational capacity. Um and that's kind of quite interesting, right? So, and, and we always have this phenomenon, of course, of like girls who are sort of 14 or 16 going out with boys who had cars or whatever, you know, pick them up from school and they would be 18 or 20. So you would have that kind of aspirational <laughs> glance up, which, which which does manifest itself in some of the Me Too stories. Russell Brand obviously kind of accused of um, having a relationship with a schoolgirl, not perhaps technically illegal, but, you know, people, I suppose people nowadays talk about, um, what do you call it? Power asymmetries or something, you know, like the idea that one person has power over another person. I think this is a bit naive because if you're young and beautiful, that's also a power. (laughs) Um, You know, the power is not only age or money or status. You know, it it may be that people don't always recognise their beauty or that that sort of sexual power, but it's definitely there. Um, some women know how to use it quite early on as well. I, by the way, I'm not suggesting therefore that they should, uh, you know, therefore do so. Uh, and again, I think we have to make a clear distinction between the sexual abuse of minors and this more complex question of, uh, you know, when somebody is, mature when someone is an adult and like you say that question itself is being pushed down from the other end right if if people are being kind of you know kept in a state of 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 permanent adolescence um i think you're right that this is what induces a kind of anxiety because also there are no obvious markers or some of the markers are out of reach and we've discussed this many times so the 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 typical or classical adult markers of owning your own home starting a family having a job that that can that is uh, secure and uh so on i mean all of these things are more and more out of reach uh for more and, and increasingly more we have people who seem to have those things but don't act like adults even though they have the things that are the markers Yes, that's true. I mean, I can think of people who sort of dedicated their lives, like we did that film, The Worst Person in the World, the the male character in that film who is sort of bought into a comic subculture. I know people like this a little bit who are very into, yeah, a a specific thing and in a way that kind of is more important to them than, you know, these, these markets. I mean, because it's obviously, it's quite hard to be an adult, right? To have a family. It's, it's also very stressful. It's time consuming. It's very real. It's very meaningful. Um, it's hard. And I think at a certain level of comfort, some people realize that they, they're not up to the job or they don't want to do it, you know, that it's just too difficult. And I think some of the, uh, research or the, journalism that's coming out of South Korea and China even around the fact that young women are simply not having children. I mean, South Korea, I think, has the lowest replacement rate. China is much lower than they thought it would be after abolishing the one-child policy in 2015. Um, you know, and, and there's a big question as to, to what is going on here. Is it a certain level of comfort? Is it technology? Is it some other curious set of things? Well, I, I think that, you know, and this is where I, I kind of want to see if I can, if I can pin you down a little bit. Like in my, in my initial thing, I kind of suggested that children are 
people who unreflexively kind of absorb the, you know, what is expected of, of good behavior, right? So children are trying to do what their parents want or trying to follow the norms and be good kids and be liked by their parents. So they're trying to live up to whatever it is that their parents are kind of imposing on them, but in an unreflective way, generally, right? And then the adolescent is, is one who goes, none of this serves me. This is all about you. What about me? Uh, and is focused on themselves and who am I and developing a sense of individuality, right? Mm -hmm. And then I, I suggest that the adult is the one who has overcome that individuality, who has come to recognize why it's important to care about other people and has therefore developed their own you know, uh, uh, ethics, their own uh, attitudes about what kinds of roles are meaningful or valuable and you know, commits to those roles. I so I, I, I think I want to suggest that in general, we have more people who stay children and more people who stay adolescents and very mm -hmm. few people who become adults in the full sense of that. Uh, and I think that people talk about, say, power dynamics a lot. The power mm -hmm. dynamics, I mean, it's one thing if you have a very, very direct, straightforward power dynamic, but I think a lot of this about you can't have someone in the relationship who doesn't make money and someone else who does, mm -hmm. you know, this becomes a way of delegitimating all relationships where you have a parent who stays at home with the children. Uh, it, it treats that as in, inherently a position of inferiority or weakness, which I think is, is not on. Uh, and also it, it gets away from what's really at issue when we talk about, say, age gap or we talk about power disparity. We're really talking about operating at different levels of consciousness. So adolescents can rehearse relationships in a way of, of trying to learn about the limits of pursuing their own individuality. When you date someone and you're 14 and you're obsessed with yourself and they're obsessed with themselves, the relationship won't work. But in trying to date someone when you're 14 or 15, you discover the limits of pursuing your own individuality, and that helps you to grow and develop and to move toward adulthood. However, if someone who's a 14 or 15-year-old dates someone who is, is more fully developed, the fully developed person overly shapes the horizons of that person mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and impinges upon them in a way that prevents them from fully actualizing. That's what we're objecting to, I think. But a lot of, of people are just looking at age numbers or they're just looking at who has money, who doesn't have money or who comes from which class background. Yeah. And they're not really drilling into what it is specifically that they care about when they object to this kind of thing. Yeah, no, no. I think that's very, very astute. I would only add that sometimes, <laughs> and I say this from a position of somebody who doesn't have children, but sometimes when I see people with children today, there is sometimes a way in which those children seem to be almost behaving like your definition of adolescence, which is to say they're the center of the world and they're not behaving in such a way as to um, impress their parents or to, to be good in that way, but rather they... Of course, if their parents are adolescents, yes. then their parents' values are individualistic and then the children have nothing to imitate but that individualism because they're yes. not being raised by proper adults. And I, I think I, I have to say that Gen X is perhaps in general, not everyone, but has a tendency perhaps towards a kind of parenting which doesn't necessarily provide that structure. <laughs> and I say this as a, as a great defender of Gen X, but I, I wonder if there is a way also from the boomers, I mean, you know, the boomers to Gen X, we were told, we just want you to be happy, which is a terrible thing to say to anybody. And, and you know, no wonder we have incredibly high drug, alcohol and suicide rates. <laughs> um, you can't do that, you know, and I, I think we, there was already a kind of erosion of, of structure and expectation, which led to a kind of anxiety because there's simply, you don't know what you're supposed to be doing at all because there's literally no structure. There's only liberal desire and individualism. And that's great for some people, but it's very bad at points for everybody. And it's really bad for some people, like all the time, because the total absence of structure or expectation, plus the imperative to be happy, which is stupid and impossible because happy means luck and in any case, no one's happy all the time, even if we use the shallow definition. Um, 
So I and I wonder because I, I was talking to my brother about gentle parenting, and he has two young children. I, I and I'm not going to talk in detail about about their situation, but the the gentle parent. I hadn't really understood what gentle parenting is, but it's it's a thing. And and he was saying, oh well, we're trying to avoid them needing therapy later on, and. I was thinking, well, I'm not sure about this. It seems to be that you don't, you're not very harsh with your children. You tell them off, but you obviously don't use any violent or threat threat of violence. Um, I think, uh, I, I don't know how to say any of this without being very controversial or reactionary, but... I do wonder if there is a necessity, at least in reserve, for the threat of hierarchy to be uh, a real thing, right? And I'm I'm definitely not saying that that parents should hit their children, but I there has to be a way of implicitly making it clear that there is a hierarchy and an authority that has to be obeyed, right? Somebody has to tell you what time to go to bed. It can't just be a permanent party for everyone. Right. This is not. Uh, this is not good. This is just sort of Dionysian chaos, without routine, without regularity. This is what Walter Benjamin says: capitalism is the party without dream or mercy. So imagine it's three a.m. forever. <laughs> this is terrible. This isn't good. <laughs> like, um, so well, yes, there is such a thing as taking away the phone, or taking away the computer, or mm. removing the television. You know, there are things you can do to. Uh, establish that children can't do whatever they want without any boundary. Uh, yes. Don't require you to physically hit anybody. Right. But I'm wondering how much that's sort of even really being enforced. I think, you know. Yeah, I think there's a lack of people doing those basic things, setting boundaries yeah. in any sense. And then that leads to a reaction where you say, bring back the corporal punishment. But you don't need to bring <laughs> back the corporal that. punishment. You just that. need to have boundaries. Yes, just I'm not saying any that. Any kind of boundary. <laughs> just to be you know, clear. You could, right. <laughs> right. But, but, but you know, you're, you're, you're flirting with it. So let's clarify our positions. No, okay. So let me be clear. <laughs> I, I'm against violence of all kinds. I'm anti-war. I, you know, I, I think that violence is a symptom of weakness. It's it's not a symptom of, of strength or anything like that. I th- I, but what I'm saying is ba- badly, but let me be clear is that i think that there has to be authority has to be backed up by if not the reality then at least the potentiality of it being enforced in a different way in a harsher way that doesn't mean that it should be enforced in a different in a different harsher way but it's it's something to do with how you how you are able to impose boundaries because otherwise if you just keep saying something but you don't do it like oh i'm going to take this away from you or if you don't stop behaving badly we're going to go home but you never actually follow through those are hollow claims and and very quickly people will understand that they don't need to obey whatever rules are being attempted to be imposed yes i think that some people developed a view that there was no fundamental difference between children and adults in the first right. instance. And therefore, children could ha- have their own values and think in an abstract way and in a uh, totally philosophical way from the beginning. You still see people who make this argument that children are the real artists or children are the real mm. philosophers. And I think the thing that makes that argument sound compelling in some instances is that you know, children can uh, be very ethically minded in the sense that they can be very, very focused on doing what it is that the authorities in the situation praise or value. Uh, If the authorities in the situation make it very clear that they will be loved if they act a certain way, children can be very, very, very focused on doing that. And they can do it very well. But people uh, sometimes mistake that for the children themselves having the capacity to formulate ethical principles from uh, from the get-go. And yeah. that's not, I, I think, what's going on. It's no, an absorption I, of, of the values around right. them. But you need to to demonstrate what those values are. And in, in fact, not just say what they are, but actually act in such a way that those values are manifest, right? So something like routine is not just a nice idea. It's something you have to do like, on a daily basis. And it occurs yeah. to me that my parents were very routine, for example. And I think this was a good thing. 
actually. Yeah, and because children can't themselves generate the concept of the good from nothing, mm. it's necessary to show them that the concept of the good also coincides with their happiness, that they're not going to be happy if they're not good. So when they're not good, they have to end up not happy. You have to do something <laughs> to make sure they end up not happy. Yeah. You know, you know, and that can be all, all sorts of seemingly small things like you know, taking away the computer or going, you know, you know, not getting to eat a particular dessert or what have you. But there has to be some kind of, you know, if you're not good, you're not going to be happy. So if you want to be happy, you've got to be good. Yes. Yes, I agree with that. And I, you know, I think... This, there's something kind of romantic and sentimental and, and very unhelpful in imagining that children have access to a truth that adults have somehow forgotten. Or I think this is very dangerous. Um, you know, children. It only have, looks plausible from the point of view of adults that are adolescents. Yeah, that have, exactly. They have forgotten completely that there is anybody else that they ought to care about apart from themselves. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, going back to the film a little bit, um, you know, you these stories also, I mean, they, they still appear sometimes, you know, not often you get these stories of like a school, a female school teacher having a relationship with a teenage boy. And I mean, one other aspect of this that maybe is worth commenting on is, is often people are very upset about that, not because of the age differential, but because of the sex Dynamics. So, because people will say quite correctly that it's, it's, uh, I suppose there is a difference. Like, if you think about an older man grooming a younger girl, let's say, let's say an underage girl, that would meet with a certain kind of disapproval, right? Whereas sometimes I think the older woman and the teenage boy is often met with a kind of, ha ha, who wouldn't have liked that, you know? sort of idea that the idea that it's not going to be damaging to the boy because boys are more sexual and who wouldn't want to have sex with their hot teacher. Do you know what I mean? Like sometimes you get this response. Yeah. Yeah. An assumption that because uh, of the sex of the boy, yeah. the boy has power in the dynamic or is more of an equal in the dynamic than or, would or, be assumed if the sexes were reversed. Yeah, but also that the boy will not suffer trauma. And I think maybe this is what the film is also trying to point to, right? So that even yeah. though the 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 story is a positive one in the sense that they stay together, they have children, their children don't seem to be too damaged. Um, nevertheless, the question raised near the end is whether whether this should have happened at all. And it's only at this point, like you say, that he can even ask this question with the interruption of the actress visiting the family because she obviously provokes this thought in his mind, frankly, also through her behaviour, which, is, like you say, is exploitative of him, but introduces uh, another image of a world, which is what it might mean to be an adult. Of course, her definition of being an adult is perhaps also dubious because when she says this is just what adults do, then... Is the, the claim is that adults exploit one another, basically. Yeah. And that's why I think Portman's character is also part of this arrested development phenomenon. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, the thing that uh, I, really I found striking about this film. There's nobody in this film who is above or beyond this thing. So you have a, a film where there are no adults in it, really. Well, apart from the one scene, like I mentioned already, with the young boy parenting his father when his father gets stoned, which is interesting. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that he's acting as an adult in that scene. I would say that he's been put in a very difficult situation mm. for someone of his age. And, you know, I, I think in the, in the abstract, if you okay. were to say, should a parent smoke pot with their kid and then have a, you know, with their teenage son who's 17, 18, and then have an emotional breakdown and force the teenage <laughs> son to take on the role of the parent. That, in a way, I think is maybe the word abuse would be too strong, but it's certainly not good parenting in that particular instance. No, but what's interesting is that the boy is quite wise in that scenario. Like he calms his father down. He seems quite worldly compared to the. What else father. is he supposed to do? No, sure, <laughs> but he could have react. He could have freaked out. He could have fallen off the roof. I don't know. <laughs> Like, I'm just saying. Well, he that. might do that later on his own. <laughs> you know, he might have the freak out later. A lot but of the I, time when people are forced to act like they're older than they are, that becomes a, a kind of baggage that they then have to unpack at a later stage. 
Yeah, no, no, sure. I think particularly if it's kind of persistent, like people who've had to bring up younger children, you know, I, I know I know a couple of people who've been in that situation who've had, like, for example, very mentally ill single parent, and they've basically ended up bringing up their younger siblings. Uh, I know two people who, in this situation are like very, very serious situation, very severe situation, in fact, um, often in very isolated the situation for the dad, he had to do all of this stuff prematurely before he was really ready. So in yeah. that scene, I see him as kind of in a in a small and temporary and hopefully fleeting way, doing the same thing to his son, which was done to him, putting him in a situation where he has to act older than he is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to think of these two men who were that I know who were in this situation, who bring up their younger siblings, that they're actually very excellent adults it's it's interesting they that neither of them see this is a very small sample of two people but they neither of them seem damaged by this experience um although both of them are very into drugs but not not in a bad way (laughs) (laughs) um but that's just generational thing i don't know uh maybe (laughs) um yeah i mean it's a very it's a very beautiful film Naturally, with this washed out color scheme, I have to say. And, oh, and uh, really well acted. Yeah. You know, I think that any film where Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore are not the best actors in the film, I think Melton does the best job. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, yeah, it's a very well acted film. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I not don't as know. if either of them does a bad job. He's just really great. That's a very difficult thing to do to play someone who's that arrested in in that severe kind of way. Yes, I agree. And he has a kind of certain stolidity. Is that the word? He's a very stolid character, like very, but but enigmatic in this kind of silent, almost dumb way somehow. One of the scenes that sticks with me that we haven't talked about is the scene where they're trying to cast the person who's going to play him at 13 in the movie. Oh, yes. And, and Natalie Portman is is involved with this. Mm. And she's rejecting these 13-year-old boy actors because they aren't hot enough. Because yes. they lack the size. And, and she's going, you need someone that you could imagine could actually cause this woman to do these things. Uh, you know, as <laughs> if it came from him. Yes, that's true. I mean, there are some very dark scenes with Portman. I mean, you know, her character is very sinister, really. I mean, you kind of wonder at various points how sinister it's going to get, actually. It doesn't quite go as dark as you might imagine. But yes, I mean, she's a very, very, you know, I mean, not least because she's seducing the target of her assignation um, <laughs> to yeah. get closer. And at the same time, she's the one who is the closest to what we generally regard as a successful, well-adjusted adult in our society, which I think should give us pause. Mm. Yes, I, I don't disagree. And I, I think Todd Haynes is, is subtle. Like all of this is very subtle commentary, but precisely, I think, in the way that you're drawing out these these moments. I mean, let's not forget, like the teenager was only really invented as a category in the mid 20th century. Like these are very, you know, up until like not that long ago in human time, children were just small adults, right? There wasn't even really this category of the teenager. I mean, you might have had like beardless youths in Athens, but, you know, they're, they're always on their way to becoming men. Well, isn't no. the critique, you know, that the moderns throw at the ancients, this idea that the ancients tried to keep everybody in a perpetual childhood by just locking everybody into a set of uh, uh, norms and institutions mm-hmm. and religious practices that keep them in fear of the judgment of a, of a dad in the form of, say, God or mm-hmm. or the church or the king or the Lord? Well, you're right. And uh, I mean, if you read Kant's essay, What is Enlightenment?, of course, the whole attack is on people who give you rules. You know, it's like, well, your priest will tell you what to do. Your lawyer, you have this and that and that. But, you know, emancipation is uh, escape from, indeed, self-incurred immaturity. So immaturity So much is- of it is a, is a critique of uh, you know, paternalism. 
There's so much, and still in contemporary uh, philosophy, there's so much a critique of paternalism. But of course, if you insist that everybody must become an adolescent and then you don't provide for people to overcome themselves and get out of adolescence, you produce a situation where you have people who in some sense are more developed, but are in another sense less ethical and less uh, able to fit into society than the perpetual child. The perpetual child can at least, you know, follow a role out of deference to a system that mm-hmm. they don't fully understand. Uh, but the adolescent will not fit in. So if you, you know, go a little ways, but not all the way, you create a situation that's quite unstable. And I think that's the, the difficulty that we've been dealing with, with, with modernity is this idea that nobody's allowed to stay a child. Everybody's got to be an adolescent. Mm. But then once everybody is an adolescent, abandoning them and not helping them to get all the way to the end, assuming that that will happen on its own. I agree. So so it's almost like the child has become an adolescent, the adolescent is an adolescent, and the adult is an adolescent. I agree with that. I think we have lost the father function. I, you know, I think when people talk about patriarchy, it's like a parody. It's like a last gasp. It, it, it's actually what we've lost because nobody is telling anyone what to do anymore. Everyone is a free individual desiring being who is supposed to make themselves. But the problem is, it's really difficult to do that. What Kant is talking about in terms of exiting our self-incurred immaturity is perhaps something that is very difficult to do without guardrails and without structure, without tradition, without history. You're basically asking everybody to come up with their own epistemology, moral system. (laughs) To raise themselves, to make themselves into adults. Nobody makes themselves into an adult. It takes a village to raise a child. Yeah. But then you have, obviously, this kind of problem of competing desires, because then you have all these people saying, well, this is what I want to do in order to express myself as an individual, and this is what makes me me. And other people saying, well, that completely clashes with my desire to be me. And, uh, you know, and then you like you have this problem, like you suggested, of not being able to overcome individualism in the name of something higher, because you have to break with narcissism in order to be a parent, ideally. Yeah. Um, the only way adolescents resolve those kinds of disputes among themselves when they're in school is by appeal to peer pressure, to what the peers think and to opinion, general opinion, what's considered cool. And that becomes the way in which we resolve all kinds of stuff when yeah. everybody is is in this kind of mindset. Exactly. And I've tried to write about this in relation to men and women, and I've said that they're more like brother and sister. So you end up with this kind of horizontal culture of emulation and competition, which is more like the squabbles that you have with your sibling. You know, the men and women are like too proximate. They're too, um, yeah, they're both economically, socially, culturally. We're competing for the same jobs. We're in the same spaces all the time. You know, it eliminates a certain distance. Yeah. At the same time, I think there is something to this idea that there's something not complete or not finished about a society where most people are adult children and a small number of people are real adults and it's masters and children, parents and children. Uh, Instead of the master-slave dialectic, I think you could refer to it as a kind of parent-child dialectic. Uh, Or parent-adolescent. I mean, I... I, Certainly, that's the way it's legitimated in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And I I mean, there were lots of kind of very dubious aspects to this in terms of the infantilization of other races, for example. I mean, in the Enlightenment and prior to that, the idea that some people or some groups of people or some populations remain children, right? Like this is something we well, know. In in defense of ancient and medieval people, that's really something it requires enlightened modern people to do, right? You know, racism as a concept, race as a concept is a concept of the enlightenment and of modernity. It's not something that mm-hmm. comes in at earlier stages. Yeah, no, no, fair enough. But that's definitely a, you know, an aspect. If you say that some people are enlightened for whatever set of reasons, and other people are are not. (laughs) Yeah, that kind of John Stuart Mill imperialism, where you suggest that the Indians in general are at a you know childlike stage of Mm -hmm. of development. Yeah, that's you know nasty stuff. Sure, but you get a lot of that out of this sense that there's a a progress narrative that everybody should be able to complete in principle. Mm And then you have to explain why various people don't seem to have it completed it 
And this tends to result in positing these these really nasty theories. Whereas, you know, I think in antiquity that the view was it's very, very difficult to complete all of this. It may not be possible for everyone to complete it. It's dangerous for people to try it and not get to the end. Mm -hmm. So you have to be really careful who you share it with. And that view is too restrictive. It doesn't allow enough people the opportunity, but it it does at least acknowledge the difficulty of the problem. Whereas I think with a lot of modern theory, there is a zeal to expand the reach of it, to use the resources that we've been able to acquire through industrialization and, and development to expand. But there is also a tendency to understate the seriousness of the undertaking and the difficulties that are involved in it. Yes. But I, I, it's it's very complicated when we think about kind of slavery and the role of women in ancient Greece, for example, or, or bits of antiquity, because those social roles are governed primarily biologically, right, in the sense that you're born into those roles. And there is no possibility in that context, or very little possibility of breaking out of them. Well, you get some of it in Plato where he suggests that yeah. women can be guardians in the city. For sure, for sure. Um, Less so in Aristotle. Aristotle is mm -hmm. more bigoted about this question. But I suppose one of the very obvious aspects of modernity would be the feminist desire one way or another for women to have rational, I mean, Mary Wollstonecraft makes this point. She says that women are treated as if they have moral capacity. What if we also treated them as if they had rational and political capacity, right? And she 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 poses that as a provocation to say, well, if you educate women, let's see if they really are limited, then they won't succeed. And and she's obviously correct in the sense that women can have those capacities. And they can act as rational and political agents. Um, yes, though far from the first person to suggest that women ought to be educated, since Plato says that they ought to be yeah, yeah. in the Republic and but, ought to receive the same education as the men. It's, it's, uh, I think what's distinctive about Wollstonecraft's approach is that it's being done in a way which uh, makes an intervention into scholastic ethics and can address an Aristotelian position. A lot of what we think of as, as the medieval position is characterized by an Aristotelian attitude toward women. And in that sure. context where that's dominant, Wollstonecraft's intervention is uh, very disruptive. Yeah, of course. And she's picking up on the, the French the French Revolution and, and the proposal for equality because it's very manifestly clear that there is no equality and and in the sense of the, the treatment of men and women. And she's in a way... Uh, and again, raising a kind of provocation against her male comrades and saying, well, you talk about equality, but what does this actually mean? Right. So, of course, it's enlightenment. It's post-enlightenment. And I think it's much more directly aimed at uh, transformation of the system, whereas Plato's idea of the regime or the republic is, I mean, very unusual, but it, it's not clear how directly... Um, it's not a policy proposal in the same way that I think Wollstonecraft's work. Well, I also think that part of the trouble is that so much of, of the Middle Ages has been kind of subsumed under Aristotelianism and under the scholastic, scholastic approach and under the kind of Aristotelian approach within uh, the uh, Islamic world. There was a lot of Aristotle in the Middle Ages. Yeah. And in antiquity, you know, we Aristotle was not so obviously accorded that pride of place. He acquired that pride of place in the Middle Ages. And then his ideas about women, I think, became uh, you know, really embedded as a consequence of that in a way that they maybe weren't further back. Yeah, sure. But what I mean is this kind of direct intervention into, you know, you could say Wollstonecraft's ideas really did have an effect, right? And the mil yeah. milieu that she was part of really did have profound effects on education and... 
Yeah, I, I guess I just I want to suggest that maybe there were, was a wider variety of ways of thinking about women before this attempt to really instantiate a very Aristotle influenced iteration of, yeah. of Christianity and Islam in the Middle Ages. Sure. Let's go with that. Anyway, we're at about an hour. So thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go do the B sign. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.